Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we've got a big show. I was really looking forward to this one. We have Lynn Alden on the show. So most of you will probably know who Lynn Alden is, focuses on macroeconomics, global financial systems, has a new book out called Broken Money that we got into. And I was really excited to talk to Lynn because she's been on a lot of other Bitcoin shows and finance shows and doing incredible work. And I wanted to focus our conversation on appealing to progressives in the left about money, about our global financial system, about the Fed, all of these nuts and bolts that usually everyday folks on uh, well, everyday folks in general, but especially on the left, kind of shy away from talking about money and talking about a lot of the things that we want to accomplish, whether it's social funding, benefits, programs, progressive values. And how, how do we look at money? How do we look at our global financial system and then some of the uh, downward effects of that in the United States and what we're seeing and why Bitcoin can actually be a pretty good answer for a lot of the things that we want to accomplish in terms of the left, obviously human rights, environmental concerns, things like that. So this was a really good conversation and really appreciate Lynn coming on the show. She's able to present things in such a great um, factual way and obviously uh, put her own opinion and thoughts into it in a way that's very, uh, for lack of better terms, bipartisan. So it's really able to be uh, read and understood from progressives as well um, in her book, Broken Money, which I highly recommend everyone look into. So really hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, please feel free to reach out. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And please be sure to check out our referral links as well, especially to SAS Mining. You can get $50 off your Bitcoin miner with the promo link in the notes. All right, I will let you all get to the episode and we'll see you again next week. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm well. Yeah, good. Uh, welcome back from Egypt as well. I know you've been keeping a lot of us in the loop, especially on Noster, which I'm a big uh, Noster evangelist on this podcast. And we'll keep telling uh, people to go over there, especially if you want to see some more insights from from Lynn on Noster. But um, how's your time in Egypt? How is it being back? Uh, my time was good. I go there every year because I have family and friends in Egypt. My husband's originally from Cairo. Uh, and so we kind of live part, you know, the majority of our life uh, in the United States, and then we, we spend a part of each year in Egypt. Um, and so uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I kind of have one foot in a developed market, one foot in a developing market, um, and I also try to use that as much as I can for my monetary insights as well as just you know personal experience. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you, you could definitely encourage folks to check out your your Twitter and. You know your notes on Nostra as well. You were you were posting a lot about some of the things you had, you had seen there, which maybe we'll touch on a bit in this conversation. But um, you coming on the podcast, what we were just talking about. One thing I want to do in this episode in particular. So I've got this big uh, what my wife called a textbook um, next to me here on camera. Um, your new book, Broken Money, which you've been on some shows talking about so far, but it's been out what, maybe a month or so? Um, this will be kind of a couple of weeks after we're talking now, right at the end of September here. But the book's been out for about a month. Um, a lot of folks in the space have read it. I've read it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And we'll touch on some things in this episode, but I encourage everyone to go out and get the book, read it. You know, We don't have enough time to go into to all of it in this episode. But one thing I wanted to do with you in this episode is talk about a lot of things you discuss in the book and target it at a left and progressive audience and talk about how we can reconcile some of the things on the left, whether it's progressive politicians themselves and, and progressives, some of those values found in, in 
progressive camps and monetary policy, the Fed, just the underlying workings of these things. Um, but first, I've heard you touch on it here and there. Um, what was it like writing this monstrous text? Was it something that was easy and just flowing? You had kind of years of putting out articles and thoughts and it just all came together. You know, what was this project like for you? So I would say that writing it mostly was um, very rapid flow. Um, there mm. wasn't like a, a lot of burden there. The challenge was in the editing phase and the details phase because I had never published a full book before. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also challenging to do it as a side project, especially because the book ended up being a little bit bigger than I expected. Um, and, you know, I, I've written so much content that, it, that that's kind of what made it easy to draw from. But the reason I started the book is because I felt I had content that was best in book form. So I'd written a number of big articles and each one kind of touches on a certain area. And I felt that there are certain concepts that are complex, but important enough that you kind of need to read a full thing in like chronological order. Um, and so I, I didn't write a book for the sake of writing a book. Instead, I felt that this is a topic that kind of deserves a book in the sense that there are a couple major themes I wanted to discuss in the book that I hadn't seen, um, you know, share too much in book form before, uh, sometimes in a verbal form and other things like that. But I really wanted to put that into a book. And then two, I really wanted to kind of walk the reader through from kind of first principles up to the modern day of kind of the history of money, the foundations of money, banking, um, what, what's currently available on the horizon, thanks to new technologies. And kind of just take that very holistic approach and then even use that space to reconcile competing ideas um, to try to really get to like the root layer of what money is rather than just try to push one particular directional view. And so the book ended up being one that is long, but I, but accessible. That's kind of the main mm -hmm. goal is that I think it's, I think money is a topic that really deserves um, a good amount of time put into it. And so that's what I try to make the book for. Yeah. Yeah. And and that definitely came through. And I also appreciate, um, I mean, I read through these sections, but I might've been just in one chapter about halfway through, but you were like, if you don't want to read this part, you can just skip through these next 10, 15 pages, go to the next chapter. So people can also study it in terms of, I think you're really good with the chapter identifications, the headings, um, recommend people read all of it, but, but it takes that approach as well. Um, yeah, I definitely, it, coming from the left, I've mentioned it here before, like my background's in like sociology, political theory, politics, my full-time job is in nonprofits. Um, so uh, equity mindset, um, human rights, social theory, all of this was always at the forefront for me. Bitcoin is where I learned about money because for me, the work of Alex Gladstein and others kind of helped me get on board with Bitcoin originally uh, and has kept me advocating for it as well. But money was, um, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that's what most, um, most people, but talking in this context, most Americans, most progressive just don't understand the, the first thing. Um, and you can look at it as a, that's intentionally so, or you can say, well, it just doesn't come up for, for whatever reason, depending on your, your outlook on, on things and who, who runs the world in a way. Um, but from here on, I guess I'll start. Do you feel that there is as much of a disconnect as, as I do, I guess, with folks on the left or progressive, whether it's friends or family you have, whether it's politicians, just thinking in general. Um, I, I think those on the right and just average everyday citizens experience this as well, but targeting it for our audience, I feel like there's just such a disconnect from the left, especially. And let's look on it um, in a glossy view. Let's say they 
want to do really, really good things, socially beneficial things, um, justice focused things. But there's such a disconnect in my mind between money uh, and what pays for that, all of these different things and these really good intentions. Um, where do you think this disconnect comes from? And how do we how do we go about even starting to talk about it? I guess your book is one approach, right? R read the book. Um, but how do you go about even thinking about that? Yeah, it's a good set of questions. And, you know, from the creation of my website and then leading into the book, I try to keep my work as nonpartisan as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certain financial outcomes have kind of political ramifications or geopolitical ramifications. So I don't like shy away from talking about politics at all, mm -hmm. but I always approach it as like, this is happening and that leads to this, or it's kind of written in such a way that it's not really directly talking to the right or the left. Um, yeah. I, I generally find that in practice, uh, my audience seems to lean towards the kind of the fiscal right, uh, mm -hmm. just because when you're talking to investors, um, people kind of interested in investing, high net worth individuals, you're, I think you're generally going to get a, a somewhat right-leaning audience, but there still mm -hmm. is a big spectrum there. And so um, I, it's something I deliberately try to do in my work is just as much as I can strip away partisanship from what I'm discussing and just trying to keep it at you know, the facts, the outcomes, things like that. Um, I, I generally do agree with you that I think the left um, probably has a bigger disconnect on money than, you know, we see elsewhere. Um, I think you could argue the, the right has bigger disconnects elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. You know, kind of each side might have certain strengths and weaknesses. And I think that monetary theory uh, is not super kind of strong right now in what I would view as the left uh, in, say, American politics or kind of just global Western, um, you know, left-leaning political groups. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, like, you know, what they wish to do or what they wish the world to be like, or the values that they want to have, um, they seem to think that you need a very flexible type of money or that, that, you know, I think that they overlook certain economic principles, um, kind of the, the second order cause and effects of what might happen when they try to do some of their policies, um, so that the outcomes might not always line up with the intentions. Um, but another thing I try to counter is, you know, if you look at polls, and you ask people, um, do you trust this party more on this issue or that issue, right? So it's like, do you trust them more on um, this issue? And they'll say Democrats. If you say, but if you say the economy, usually people say Republicans. Uh, they normally uh, will will say the Republicans are better on the economy. Um, but you know, an article I put out a while ago, and again, I wasn't trying to be partisan. It was just kind of like analyzing the numbers. Is when you look at kind of modern history, like the past fifty years of American politics. Um, when a Democrat president is in charge, you've historically had faster uh, GDP growth, both nominal and real, uh, and you've had less debt creation. Um, mm. So actually, there's it, the numbers kind of don't really support that that prior narrative, uh, mm. because I think that the generally um, more right leaning um, groups have kind of like that trickle down type of economic style uh, has not really been effective so far in, in kind of modern American history. And so um, I think that there's kind of economic disconnects everywhere in modern mm -hmm. politics. Um, but I think in terms of the kind of the root ideologies of what money is or what good money looks like, um, I think that there is a disconnect, maybe specifically between the idea of hard money and and the political left, I think that's that's an idea that doesn't go well together, but that I think when it's fully researched, um, that doesn't need to be the case. Uh, I think that's a fixable disconnect. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, yeah, it's like it, it's hard to know where to to begin. And even this set of questions I have here, just just based on your book and the left, um, 
I actually did this, um, uh, Bradley Rettler and I spoke recently and that episode, I think will come out by the time this one does or right around. But, you know, one of the things I, I've done is just pulled up the value set of the progressive caucus, the hundred or so members of Congress that consider themselves in the, or that are in the progressive caucus. Um, a lot of the, the far left progressives in the U S while I, as a, as a progressive and would probably align with a lot of their value sets, I align with a lot of the value sets about some of the problems they're identifying, like forever wars, we need to address healthcare concerns, a lot of these things that, you know, try to separate your politics from it. And okay, how much we spend on that and this and that a lot of folks might say, yeah, in, in the US, that's that's kind of a broken system, or it hasn't been working well, and it's getting worse and worse over time. The thing that I deviate from, there was one line that talked about how debt, basically saying like debt isn't as big of an issue as people on the right like to say. But again, the right and left both compete against each other, depending on who is, you know, leading the house, who is president when talking about the debt, right? But usually it's been a talking point recently from the GOP based on the structures um, in the US that debt is a problem. But I do have to push back on the progressive caucus and a lot of progressives saying debt is a concern. We can't keep saying, okay, student loan debt, this, okay, we can put in $10 trillion into addressing our climate crisis and that's fine with no regard whatsoever for the the debt crisis. So that's one thing that I think from leadership through and through the party or a vast majority of the party, um, especially the far left, while I agree with their intentions and their value set, there's such a disconnect from money that it's hard to know where to begin to have them look into resources. Or I, I'm even wondering why staffers of these um, politicians don't literally have a copy of like your book and read that or read other resources that talk about some of these different theories. It seems that it's not even on the table. Um, and I'm wondering, have you or, or others, you know, that are talking about things in, in similar ways to you have ever had contact with these staffers have ever had whether, whether it's lobbying groups or things from the left. Cause I don't think a lot of them even look into economic principles, the way that you lay out, um, in nonpartisan ways. Yeah, so for the most part, they've not really reached out. Uh, generally, when I get political reach out, it's more from the right. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just kind of how, how things go. So basically, politicians that are more on the right. The, the closest one, I, I, I did talk to um, uh, Robert Kennedy on the left. Um, mm. uh, there was like a group where he wanted to privately be educated about some aspects of Bitcoin. Um, uh, but he's, he's not exactly, um, you know, viewed as like a left figure at the moment he sees more of a his own ground um yeah and i've gotten flack for this but it, it wasn't me putting any opinions on him specifically although i i do it was more so the left and many progressives in the left whether it's in my everyday life um or politicians are not on board with robert kennedy right so when people say oh robert kennedy is a democrat left candidate a lot of people do not see him that way and that's just the facts of the matter right now that that could change so yeah, when people say, oh, he's a left candidate, it's like, well, yes, technically, unless he, he does go independent, which I've heard some mur murmurings that he may. Um, so it, I don't want to say it doesn't really count, but you know, uh, there's no one in the left that's looking into some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. A general thing I've found, I, I think some of this comes from priv privilege in the sense that when you're the issuer of the world reserve currency, debt matters a lot less for a long period of time. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it never matters, but it means you have a longer disconnect or a longer runway, or you've got like a, almost like a pain reliever where you don't really feel it. You don't really f feel the feedback as quickly as you would if you were in another country. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're in a developing country, uh, debt matters tremendously. 
Um, and if yeah. you're in a developed country, debt currently matters less, um, but it matters a lot all at once when it does matter. Um, and I think that the also, the generally what you see, so when I wrote the book, there's kind of like two kind of philosophical camps for how they organize their conception of money. And there's like the commodity theory of money and the credit theory of money. And generally speaking, you'll see uh, conservatives kind of appreciate more the commodity theory of money. And you'll generally see people more on the left uh, gravitate towards the credit theory of money. Mm. Um, and it's the general idea that, especially in modern times, that it's useful to have a flexible ledger because that makes government spending uh, potentially easier to do. Um, but one pushback I have or one kind of way that I try to reconcile say the idea of uh, hard money with the left would be to say that you know if your political policies are popular then your spending should be able to be funded transparently through things like mm -hmm. taxation uh, whereas a flexible ledger where you're funding things through dilution in a more opaque and hard to measure way mm -hmm. um, shouldn't need to happen if if your policies are what the public wants and what they approve of and the, the challenge, of course, with a flexible ledger is that it goes both ways. So on one hand, a flexible ledger can be used to fund social programs that might be popular among the left, uh, but it can also be used to fund war, uh, which is generally not popular uh, among the left, or at least most types of wars. And if you look at kind of American history over time, say over the past uh, kind of post-World War II history, Every war we have is subsequently funded less and less by like a special war tax or things like that. And instead, they're increasingly funded with credit, which then gets kind of deferred into currency dilution and deficit monetization over time. Mm -hmm. And so we end up paying for it without really knowing the cost of it. So one example I use in the book is that during the war on terror, uh, when we were, you know, after we were already in Afghanistan, when we were kind of um, going into Iraq, Gallup polls were tracking public perception of the war at the time, and they found that well over 70% of the public supported the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And But I think it, my point is that if you were to go back and say, well, you actually have to pay for it in real time. So would you support a war in Iraq if it came with a 10% wartime income tax while we're there? And I mm -hmm. think you'd see that, of course, the numbers would drop dramatically when there's actually a tangible cost associated with it. So what we see now is that the numbers associated with that combined war and the interest payments on the war and the veterans' like, uh, health benefits from the war, it's just, you know, it's many trillions of dollars. And it's projected to eventually be like over 10 trillion, well over 10 trillion. And that's something that the public didn't really have to conceptualize at the time when they would vote for people that supported it or when they were directly asked, do you support for it? So I think that that non-transparency in the public ledger is... And the flexibility and the ability to be diluted is something that the left generally appreciates. But I think that if they were to go more into kind of monetary history or monetary principles, I think that the idea of hard money and, and people with a, a more progressive viewpoint can be reconciled. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use. And it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. 
Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. To your point on debasement, basically, because I think you, I've, I've thought about it this way before, but I don't know if I've seen it articulated so clearly, but you can almost look at inflation as levels of debasement, right? So you had talked about that in your book as well. Even this, and I, and I put out a tweet today, partly inspired by revisiting some of your, your text um, in the middle of the middle chapters or around the Fed and things like that, but saying, in my view, 2% inflation, and I'm not trying to be tongue in cheek, is a scam the way it's promoted and talked about in, in my opinion, especially, and I said, as a progressive, and I hate even having to say as a progressive, but it's like something that needs to be said and kind of with an asterisk from, from the left to criticize growth in this way is not a very popular opinion on the left, um, even though it, it should be because of these theories of, of debasement and things. So you had said in your book, currency debasement, you know, uh, around currency debasement and war, there's so many different reasons. It's kind of the chicken or the egg, like what's the inspiration for this? But, you know, if debasement can occur, it will occur, is one quote you have. And I think that's so true. The fact that, uh, of course, and it's been said before, if you have a money printer, you're going to use it, right? And this is one thing that I'm, I'm curious your opinion on this, if you think Bitcoin fixes this at all. Well, one thing I'm skeptical that Bitcoin fixes is politics. I'm not sure in maybe some ways, but our, our political cycles, right? We have these four-year elections. We have this endless <laughs> cycles in the Senate and, and Congress members, of course, but even in presidency, like no one is going to come in and say, all right, we got to rein in the debt and raise taxes and do all of this stuff, right? That's a lot of immediate pain for Americans, corporations, all of this. They wouldn't get voted in, right? So they're constantly thinking about election rather than actually running things in a responsible way. And one day someone's going to be left with the hot potato. It's just, okay, it's not, it's not me today. So tomorrow it will be someone else. Um, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on if Bitcoin fixes any of this because the way i see it there's a lot that bitcoin fixes and at the very least it's an opt-out system in a lot of ways but addressing the current system or the current incentives is quite overwhelming to think about especially in terms of debasement and political elections so i think that i mean you know in a in a hypothetical future where bitcoin is very very large um that has a shot at fixing it in the sense that when politicians overpromise something without knowing how to pay for it or something like that, or they want to cut taxes without cutting spending, that has more immediate feedback loops um, that become apparent. You know, mm. and so I think a variable that the public would consider in their voting is is just being generally more fiscally aware um, and basically being able to assess politicians. But you know, in in the current environment with a flexible ledger, we assess politicians differently than we would. If politicians like, you know, literally had to like balance the budget or maintain very low levels of debt because they're dealing with like a, a hard currency. And, you know, kind of going back to the prior point, um, inflation is like this invisible thing that's around us that I, I think this people fully don't appreciate kind of the magnitude of it because technology and productivity alone should over time lower prices of most things. The general direction mm -hmm. of prices should be down when compared to like, you know, the amount of hours you have to work or compared to like a finite unit. And what central banks do in the modern era is they try to expand the money supply, either through um, uh, encouraging bank lending, fractions or bank lending, or by monetizing fiscal deficits. They try to incur uh, support money supply growth such that it overrides that 
productivity-driven and technologically-driven deflation that would occur. And so in the developed world, for example, you have something like an average of 7% annual broad money supply growth. Mm. And when you kind of look down the stack of what prices do in that environment, you have super scarce things like fine art and waterfront property generally go up in line with this, with this money supply growth. Then you have semi-scarce things, you know, gold, oil, uh, houses, beef, uh, you know, kind of like things that are either energy intensive, labor intensive, you know, healthcare, education, things like that, mm. childcare. Those go up at maybe 4%, 5% because we are getting better at making them or we're figuring out how to make more of them, but not at a very quick rate. So they're at a slightly lower price growth rate than the broad money supply, but still quite positive and still above CPI. And then the CPI calculation itself is weighed down by all sorts of long tail deflationary things. So we get exponentially better at electronics, or we get exponentially better at software, or we outsource things and industrialize things, and that makes things way cheaper, or we do substitutions, right? So if people eat ribeye and that gets too expensive, and then they switch over to ground beef, and that gets too expensive, and they switch over to chicken, that gets too expensive, so they switch over to soybeans. You know, the, the CPI is inherently a recursive function that takes into account uh, consumer substitutions into cheaper goods if certain things get too expensive. So the combination of all those things makes it so that the true basket of what people want to buy if they could is generally above the rate of CPI growth. And mm. and But it's hard to measure, and it's just kind of this opaque system that they're in that in some ways is inherently unnatural. And the the second ramification of that is that when most people think of inflation, they think of the damage it does to savings. You know, like you're holding the money and the money gets debased. So you've kind mm -hmm. of like retroactively lost some of your time. But a, another thing that goes underappreciated is the unit of account uh, that your income or your business income is denominated in. And mm -hmm. especially, uh, you know, kind of speaking to your audience of, of progressives, obviously one of the, the groups that progressives generally care about is, is like the worker, um, the, the middle class, the working class, um, you know, people that are not in the top couple percent necessarily. And a lot of them have incomes that are denominated in you know units of that local currency. And the challenge with constant inflation, especially when real inflation is a little bit above what the actual CPI is, mm -hmm. is that they have to get a raise every year just to keep up with that inflation. And the burden of effort is always on the entity trying to change their wage, right? The, the one mm -hmm. with the status quo has a natural kind of negotiation advantage. And so you see people generally moving jobs unnecessarily because that's one way that they kind of reset that anchoring bias. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a recent example of being in Egypt is, you know, so their money supply is growing at about 20% a year. Generally in developed mm -hmm. countries, developing countries, you'll see a higher rate of money supply growth to varying degrees depending on how you know, kind of well run that country is. But theirs is about 20%. And they just recently did a dollar devaluation. So they devalue their, they cut their currency in half relative to the dollar. They were trying to support it at a current level, and then due to a deal with the IMF, they had to they had to devalue their currency. Mm. And so, if you go around and ask how many Egyptians were able to get a hundred percent raise based on the fact that their currency was just halved, mm. the answer would be that ninety nine plus percent of them could not. Right. So now, yeah. on an ongoing basis, um, you know their wages are not growing at twenty percent a year in line with the money supply growth. Uh, their mm. wages did not double when the currency got cut in half, and so the vast majority of them are making fewer dollar equivalents than they were before this decentralized decision to devalue the, the currency. And mm -hmm. of course, that's an extreme example, but you see the same general thing in developed countries where if you have an average of 
you know, kind of the desired basket of goods going up three, four, five percent per year on average, you know, the the starting point of your wages keeping up with that is three, four, five percent, let alone any any additional raise you should get for seniority, uh, you know, better productivity because you're more experienced. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that the ongoing dilution of units that you're paid in is a uh, like a a under kind of under researched, under like a misunderstood area. And that the importance of that is so it's it's higher than just your savings being debased. It's your ongoing kind of contractual income streams. Yeah, it's again in the most pessimistic view, it's a it's a massive cover up um, in, in terms of all of this. And sometimes I do wonder because I know I've heard you mention several times, like Jerome Powell or the the Fed. Like a lot of them are just in a, in a generous view doing the even though I don't personally believe this, but doing the best they can given this system. And with the most generous view, sometimes it's just like, what will it take to get out of this, right? Like there's, you know, some people like hyper-Bitcoinization, like, okay, US dollar default, all of these things. I'm not personally in that camp thinking any of that will happen in our lifetime in terms of some sort of like catastrophic, like doomsday event in the United States um, in our lifetime. I think Bitcoin and the US dollar would be pretty parallel for a while. I would like to to hope, and I think you've mentioned this too, I would like to see, I think the US dollar um, dominance decrease over time. You've mentioned a lot of benefits that could actually potentially do, I think for US workers as well, in terms of, or the strength of it at least, um, of the dollar. So for, for me, it's like, we need some candidates, I, I think potentially that would, be in politics, be in in positions like the Fed, but then how do folks get up to the Fed? Well, they have to make their way through the marching orders for quite a while. And by the time they get to that point, usually there's not anyone left that would actually make drastic changes unless they're a candidate from far light or or far uh, far left or far right that also holds maybe some pretty unpopular views on other things that, that don't have to do with that particular job. So for, for me, it's just tough to know um, the approach here because it's just a a spiral that I don't know if there's any way out is my pessimistic view on this. The optimistic take is while there's tools like Bitcoin and people slowly starting to wake up more to what's actually going on. So I think that if there's a way out, it's, it's something like Bitcoin. Um, So Mm. it's not to say that Bitcoin is guaranteed to be successful, but it's to say that if Bitcoin is not successful, I don't really see like a second, way to do it uh, realistically is mm. is probably the pessimistic view and one thing i kind of cover a lot in the book is is and somewhat indirectly is the idea of technological determinism in the sense that the invention or deployment of certain technologies generally has a bigger impact than political decisions because political decisions mm. are local and temporary um, whereas technology permanently can change things and also can permanently change incentive structures for what sort of political things are even workable Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the big example I use in the book is that you know in the second half of the 1800s they invented and and more specifically deployed the telegraph system. So they de- mm-hmm. deployed the telegraph across Europe, across uh, America. They in 1866 they they ran it under the Atlantic Ocean. So then you had instant communication between two continents. Um, by the early 1900s they had it across the Pacific, and so that's kind of the time frame for when the world entered what we can consider kind of the modern era, the telecommunication era of global um, instant communication. And that enabled instant transactions as well. Banks and uh, you know various financial entities or customers on, on their behalf could 
communicate with each other and agree on transactions. And the at the time there was like the gold standard and gold itself could not physically settle at anywhere near that speed. I mean, basically it had to be transported securely and they had to be verified. That's a much slower process. And so what that technology did was it, it basically gave banks and central banks and, and policymakers a lot more leeway because gold had to be abstracted so much to keep up with credit. Mm. And that gave kind of these monopoly powers to central banks and the banking establishment. And so that's kind of how we ended up in this world of 160 different fiat currencies. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, you're born in like the world reserve currency or one of the top 10 currencies. If you're unlucky, you're born in like the long tail of these currencies that go up by in supply by 20% per year, which makes it very hard to accumulate capital mm -hmm. um, or save or, you know, have a currency that's accepted anywhere outside of your country. And the only, I think, credible way to kind of more persistently go against that is the invention of digital settlements, basically settlements that can occur as quickly as transactions can. And I think Bitcoin is the first and you know, still basically only credible way to do that in a decentralized way. And so then it becomes a matter of, you know, is it robust and strong enough to slowly gather more and more of that monetary energy? So when you look at emerging market, as they start kind of misusing their ledger and their ledgers falling apart, more and more people in that country gravitate towards dollars or gravitate towards other types of money. And then that reduces the kind of the, the monetary power of the printers. Like they, mm -hmm. they print and they get the consequences much more quickly because people are not really holding a lot of their value in that money anymore. And I think over time that's going to happen to the dollar. I think that basically as we get over, you know, now we're over 100% debt to GDP. Now we're running, you know, we're demographic top heavy. Unlike Japan, we have a structural trade deficit. Um, so we have both a fiscal deficit and a trade deficit. Um, you know, we have a much, much larger military apparatus to support than Japan does. So there's, I think going forward, it's not that necessarily the U.S. encounters like a doomsday scenario. I think it just starts in some ways to have similar consequences to what an emerging market would have, especially mm -hmm. because now, you know, compared to, you know, in an emerging market, the apex predator is kind of the dollar, right? The, the dollar is always something that in various ways they can try to access. And now Bitcoin is potentially an apex predator to the dollar. It's, it's a currency with you know, zero terminal supply growth. Um, it can be self-custody, it's decentralized. Uh, by most attributes, it's, it's superior. And so as long as that continues to be the case, as long as it continues to be secure, decentralized, and you know, developers keep you know, strengthening the ecosystem in various ways, this is what I would argue is the first kind of credible um, superior money to the dollar mm. and it can kind of slowly choke out the dollar in a similar way that the dollar kind of slowly chokes out um, emerging markets that, that, you know, mismanage themselves. Yeah. Do you, um, this is maybe a bit outside of your, your realm of focus that you focus on frequently, but I've seen, I think you like to engage in a lot of different discussions. Um, one thing that I do worry about, especially in the U S context is um, I, I try to focus on, cause there's a lot in the Bitcoin community whether it's for memes or whether it's literally just only talking about like Bitcoin is here and it is indestructible. So not contrarian, but I try to push back on that or try to touch on like what are, what are the realities of what we're playing with? That's why I try to engage in this political process because there are politicians that can make it more difficult for things like Bitcoin to be as successful as I think it can be in the US for everyday people or for these systems to change. One of the things that's really tough for me is we hear a lot of debate between um, 
you know, commodities, like is Bitcoin a commodity? Is it a security? Personally, I think the ship's probably sailed on it being a security. I think there's enough of a, a pattern where folks are saying, okay, it's a commodity. But still, I think that still it puts Bitcoin in such a box that it does not belong in. I'd like to personally see some new classification or removing some sort of classification. I think capital gains get in the way of Bitcoin. I think there's so much that's limiting it. I'm worried about what ETFs could do to Bitcoin in terms of like con people continuously seeing it as an investment product and not better money or an asset that they can actually hold. And they don't have to, what many are encouraging people to do, gamble in the stock market to be able to save anything, right? We're not able to save money. You have to um, do risky bets. So I'm, I'm worried about a lot of the legislative landscape in terms of Bitcoin and just people being able to use it for its intended purposes. Other jurisdictions are more friendly, but the US is still very restrictive on that. And I don't see that changing um, anytime soon, unless there's a, a drastic uh, change in terms of players in these positions. But I'm curious your, your take on that and the tension between technological advancement, but the bureaucrats that are standing in the way of that. So I, you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem is large and diverse enough that there's people with different expertise. Uh, and so you know, some people are just kind of heads down building, right? You know, mm -hmm. they're technologists, uh, but there are, I think, really valuable slots for people that are, you know, interested in Bitcoin and also interested in politics mm -hmm. to do their best to make footholds in terms of either educating people around Bitcoin, um, trying to prevent kind of um, problematic legislation that would, you know, make it harder to be to, to be in Bitcoin, to use Bitcoin, things like that. So I do think that that's valuable, um, and I think that. You know, Bitcoin is something that's it's powerful, it's robust, but I wouldn't describe it as invincible. And then even if something was invincible, the, the time with which it takes for that to grow larger can be slowed down by other very powerful forces. Mm -hmm. um, and so to the extent that you don't want your own country to, to be slowed down in that regard, I think it's important to engage in the political process, or at least for some members of the of the ecosystem to engage in that political process. And that's one reason I, you know, I try to uh, share um, uh, Jason's uh, progressive case for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I think that, that that kind of work is valuable, and I like to see more of that because, and I, I like how Peter McCormack described it as that's the most important book for conservatives, ironically, mm -hmm. because it's like, and the way I would add to that is like. That's like protecting your left flank, right? If you're only speaking to um, Republicans, um, you can have problems from the left as it comes to Bitcoin due to them not understanding it or being more hostile towards it. Whereas if you have a part of the progressive side that understands and appreciates Bitcoin, that's now like a some degree of bipartisan defense for the mm -hmm. network. And it, it can make the lives of Bitcoiners um, less hard in that environment. And you know, overall, I think that that's, um, you know, I think that that's just valuable work to be done. And when you see kind of very extreme political environments, like for example, it was illegal to own gold uh, from, from the mid 1930s to the mid 1970s in the United States. So in the mm -hmm. land of the free, you couldn't own a benign yellow metal because in many ways they viewed that as the apex predator to the dollar. They wanted to right. depeg the dollar, then they wanted to float the dollar. Um, the dollar was devaluing. And so when, when you're kind of doing a, a type of financial oppression, generally you have to block things that are stronger than you, right? So they mm -hmm. didn't have to block money flowing to like a weaker country, but weaker countries had to try to block their value from flowing to the U.S. And really the only thing the U.S. had to block was money flowing into gold. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
but that was only possible because you had such a sweeping victory um, by by one political party. I mean, at one point they controlled like seventy percent of Congress, and when they did these executive orders and they, you know, they kind of uh, were able to mold the Supreme Court to their view. That kind of draconian thing takes a pretty strong supermajority to establish. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're trying to prevent something like that happening to Bitcoin, uh, having some degree of bipartisan support or kind of like like mixing things up to some degree gives you defense against some of those extreme outcomes of like say trying to ban Bitcoin or I, I think other things like various um, hostilities towards the idea of privacy in general. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the more that you can educate different parts of the electorate and different you know members of different political parties at the very least you you reduce the probability of extreme negative legislation from occurring and then around the margins you can get some positive legislation um i I think unfortunately it's going to be a lot of time until uh the capital gains tax situation is different because one of the main ways that countries uh maintain their own little currency bubble their own little currency monopoly is by only accepting their currency as tax and by putting a capital gains tax on any other asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, uh, my preference would be towards, you know, other monies not having a capital gains tax um, so that Bitcoin should be spendable without being capital gains taxed. Um, but I think realistically, that's going to be a longer term solution. And so when I think politically, it's more like, okay, what can be done first to prevent like the extreme negative outcomes? And then from there, how can you start advancing some maybe more constructive um, type of legislation? Yeah, and one of the things I'm, I'm bullish on in terms of the capital gains tax is I'm hoping that similar to what you said about technological advancement, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, whatever, uh, Jack Dorsey stepping into a little bit more of a hands-on role with Square Payments and seeing some of these other players for better or for worse, whatever people think of this Coinbase trying to integrate Lightning, if that comes to fruition or however long that takes. So people utilizing and using the Lightning Network, a lot of these major companies, corporations, people seeing, I want to use this to save on credit card fees as a small business, all of this other stuff. I'm hoping that tide will be so overwhelming at some point that it could surprise people how much demand there is for people to say, at least at the $200 cap and things they've been talking about, remove capital gains tax from that. Because I think there are a lot in the Bitcoin ecosystem that talk about Bitcoin as digital gold and try to give metaphors, which is really good. But I also you have to talk to people about Bitcoin where they're at, but I also like to say it is an electronic peer-to-peer cash system. That's one thing that that that's seeing Bitcoin uh, really utilized, and that's the way we see it utilized in the developing world that I've had many conversations with folks about. So I'm hoping the technological tide can also push that. That's one of my more optimistic takes when it comes to you know lightning, other layer two, layer three options for for Bitcoin is maybe just maybe we can push that through a little bit more because you know, we can't wait for them to change that. It's not going to happen. I agree. And I think, you know, the larger the network is, the more people use it, the more they see benefits from using it, um, the more, as you say, the tide shifts and the more people kind of, you know, the, the more popular it would be to have a bill that says, okay, the first, you know, X number hundred of dollars worth of Bitcoin transactions are not taxed, for example. Mm. Um, and right now, if you were to run a poll on something like that, most people don't care because most yeah. people don't use Bitcoin. Whereas once you get that number much higher, that becomes more of a, a preference. And then there's also the idea of like the intransient minority, which is basically that it, you know you don't have to have to necessarily be the the majority to get something view, but you have to be a large enough like voting block or like it, the people that really care about that issue pushing it pretty hard. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you get kind of a, you don't necessarily need half of Americans to be interested in Bitcoin, but if you get a much larger minority group, that's like Bitcoin is one of the most important things that they view and that they're the things they're con they're contacting their politician about that starts to become more and more of a reality. I think that's probably still some number of years away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far what we've generally seen is that smaller countries have been a little bit more nimble at trying things because they're kind of, sometimes they're in a position of like nothing to lose. Right. So they're like, well, like we're going to take risks and we're going to adopt Bitcoin or you see, um, countries that are kind of already wealthy city state type places saying, okay, we're going to be a, a place where Bitcoin and crypto companies can come and have kind of looser regulations. And we're going to kind of experiment or embrace newer technologies. And we're going to capture any sort of maybe taxable income that, that could come from, you know, being a more friendly environment to those. But the United States, because of its, um, focus on the strength of its capital markets and the focus on its reserve currency, I think is inherently just kind of going to be one of the slower markets for uh, embracing it because, you know, incumbents rarely disrupt themselves, even when it would benefic- like be beneficial for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually you have startups disrupting blue chip companies. You don't really see blue chip companies constantly disrupting themselves because they end up being too comfortable in the position they already have. Uh, and that's, of course, a risk if you if you want America to do well or if you want your blue chip company to do well, if you're a part of it, you want them to disrupt yourself because that's that's how you stay in the game for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think while it, it would be good for the United States to take a more proactive role on Bitcoin, um, I think that realistically, we're probably not going to be ahead of the pack because we are we are the incumbent. We are the ones that are comfortable with the design of the current system, or at least the, mm. the elites are the, you know, kind of the heads of the corporations, heads of the government, heads of, you know, kind of the, the heads of various power structures are generally liking the current system. Right. Uh, and speaking of one, one figure that many people have many different opinions on, I'm, I'm curious your take on Gary Gensler and some people on one extreme end have said he's a Bitcoin maxi. And this is some underlying plan to to make sure that um plebs get enough time to stack bitcoin and and all this stuff and and it doesn't fancy other other crypto um a more harsh take is someone who's just trying to hold on to power no matter what and just has it out against crypto bitcoin um in in the long run and is just going to keep doing that so i'm curious your take on Gensler, someone in that type of position, um, his stances on ETFs so far and, and what you might see playing out over the next year, because there's, there's so many interesting things happening on the precipice of recession, further recession, on the precipice of the halving, these ETFs, there's just a, a lot going on. And so some people listening, even if they don't know that much about Bitcoin, you're, you're hearing some of these things. You're hearing BlackRock, you're hearing ETF, you're hearing Gary Gensler's name more and more. Um, even just everyday people just seeing these types of things, um, congressional hearings where they're blasting Gary Gensler and, and all of this kind of stuff. Like, um, how are you making heads or tails of this situation? So I don't know him personally. Um, I just, just from watching the actions, I would say, I, I don't view the actions as being very constructive. Um, I, I think he does seem to favor Bitcoin more than broader crypto. Uh, but I wouldn't mm. necessarily consider him a strong supporter of Bitcoin either based on his actions. Um, I, it seems maybe a lot of it has to do with just steps he can take to advance his own career. 
you know, within the mm. current administration, which is not particularly Bitcoin or crypto favorable, right? So if he was kind of a staunch supporter of Bitcoin in this administration, that could potentially reduce his career uh, chances. Um, but, you know, I don't want to read too much into it because, like I said, I don't know the person. But, for example, there are a number of countries now that have a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, it doesn't really have any problem tracking the price. Um, you know, there's already Bitcoin futures that are allowed. Um, and so the, the SEC's approach of allowing all of these like derivative types of products, but not allowing a spot ETF has in many cases hurt customers more than anything else. I mean, they either, mm -hmm. they either go into, um, you know, Bitcoin trusts like GBTC that, that can lose, um, you know, they can trade deeply at a discount to their net asset value with no way to reconcile that. So they can get trapped in that situation or they can do futures-based ETFs, which which over the long run, run tend to underperform their underlying asset due to losing money to those rolling futures. Um, and so I think that ironically, the thing that would support some of these entities is allowing a spot ETF. But I think that partially they don't want to do that because that's somewhat constructive for price, more than mm -hmm. these kind of cash-settled, uh, derivative-based types of products. So, And we've seen in kind of court filings that so far the SEC's case for things like, you know, not allowing a spot ETF until you can ensure no price manipulation are not really with merit because when you compare, say, um, you know, price action on exchanges to price action on futures, they're like 99% correlated. Um, basically, the SEC has kind of failed to make a case for why a spot ETF is any different than these other products. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of two approaches you can, if you're the SEC in this, in this case, there's kind of two approaches you can do. On one hand, you're trying to protect what is the most valuable capital market in the world. Um, and you don't want these disruptive changes to affect it. Like you don't want two sets of rules. You don't want to say, okay, all these existing securities have to follow this like, you know, very strict set of rules. But if you're a token, you can be equity-like and yet not really have the same high level of disclosures, right? Because then mm -hmm. if you're, you're going to, you're going to start seeing kind of run to the exit towards that new model, right? So you can see why they want to protect the, existing capital structures that they have but that's that's kind of the you know the the more in some cases i think you can call like a conservative view not necessarily politically conservative but just meaning like it's it's kind of maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. whereas the other approach would be a more um, progressive approach of saying okay securities laws written in like the 1930s might not be the clearest um format we have going forward technology's changed to some degree um, and, you know, could our securities laws be hampering technological growth in some way? Is our regulatory environment uh, too, um, like, inconducive to change or improvements? And mm -hmm. is there a way that we can maybe have a framework that allows some of these types of assets to have better disclosures or have better investor protections and kind of update security laws for the 21st century? But that's that's something that's complex, hard, and it's not something they've really seemed interested in doing. And instead, they're they're just saying, "Look, here's the here's the literature from 90 years ago, uh, and mm. either you comply with that or you don't. And we're going to go after anything that doesn't comply with that." Which I think is, you know, it's, I can, for one hand, see why they're doing it to kind of keep their level playing field that they have, or at least that's the idea. Um, but I just don't think it's very productive here uh, with the current kind of rate of change of technology. Yeah, I, I, part of it too, it almost seems, because it, it's similar to uh, Gensler and 
Elizabeth Warren, for instance, in two very different positions, very different functions. I'm not even sure what they may or may not agree on personally, but the what I've seen of actions is kind of similar, like Gary Gunzer talks about protecting customers, protecting everyday Americans and deciding for folks, okay, I know better than you. When personally, I don't think he cares as much as he's coming off, just personally, this is just a, a thought. Um, one way or another, in terms of allowing these products, I think at the end of the day, he has to know, okay, there, in some, in some terms of these ETFs, like this doesn't really hold a lot of weight. The, these reasons that have, that have come out similar to like Elizabeth Warren talking a lot about protections for people. And that's why she is against Bitcoin. Like that's where she has stopped with her thinking is because, okay, there's fraud, there's criminality that could occur because of people and companies that have nothing to do with with Bitcoin or the underlying technology, but that's where her, her brain just shuts off. So I think Gary Gunzer's like, let me set myself aside as an individual and for the SEC as a, I think it's his philosophy of how to run the department. It, it, it seems to me that's, that's been his approach. And I think he knows in a way, I think he's a bit of a, I wouldn't say maxi, but I think he sees the potential of Bitcoin. I think he thinks it would be extremely disruptive for these ETFs to come to market in terms of price action, capital, everything. And, and I, I also agree. I think it would be extremely disruptive. And I think the world in a lot of ways would turn on its head in terms of how people are allocating capital and what happens from there on. That's why a lot of Bitcoiners are, are bullish on it. And it's one of those weird things where, yeah, price action is going to do good things for Bitcoin on a global scale, even if it's coming from, from BlackRock, who hasn't been the biggest um, friend to you know working class Americans or you know, our dollar reserve status, like, you know, citizens in Togo, like all of these other uh, humanitarian efforts we, we think about. It's that, that Trojan horse effect. Yeah, I think what gives a lot of these politicians cover is the fact that most of the crypto industry is scammy. Um, yeah. And, and part of why that happens. So whenever, so on one hand, the past several decades have been a process of slowly removing centralized gatekeepers. Basically, as mm. newer technologies came around, it allowed us to circumvent the gatekeepers. So for example, it's much easier to self-publish a book or self-publish a song or self-publish uh, a TV show or radio show. It's what we're mm. doing now. Um, you know, These things are now much easier to do than they were in, in that more centralized era. And as mm. you, the, the only major downside of removing the gatekeeper is that you also, you know, by removing that gatekeeper, there's going to be a flood of low quality content that gets to market. And then it's more on the consumer to kind of pick out, you know, what is, what is good or what is bad. Mm -hmm. And the stakes for that are not very high with books, movies, shows, songs, things like that. They they'll gravitate towards what they like. The challenge is that in this era, the, the recent gatekeeper that's been brought down is now that we can, we can issue peer to peer securities, right? Mm -hmm. we, we can create this like token project and uh, make all these promises and people can put capital into it and then we can rug pull them, right? Mm. And the SEC and previously the whole infrastructure of centralized exchanges and centralized brokers, things like that, that was the apparatus, that was the gatekeeping apparatus. And with, with you know, crypto tokens and things like that, it's able to go around them. And in some ways, it's the same challenge as when other gatekeepers went down, which is that there's going to be a lot of, you know, the vast majority is going to be like this, this poor content that you have to circumvent as a consumer. But just now the stakes are much higher because you can get scammed, you can lose a lot of money. And so when you look at, say, trad traditional venture capital, you know, when you're investing in a startup idea, you're taking capital from accredited investors and your own capital, 
you're putting it into startup companies. And then from there, you're very liquid, probably for five to 10 years. Basically, that mm. company has to mature, grow, or fail. And primarily, your, your primary forms of exit are either a, another company decides to acquire your company, which means a bunch of professional analysts at that company, you know, they value it, they, they decide to buy it, uh, or you're eventually big enough to go public, get past the SEC, and list on a major exchange. And those are the two major ways that you get exit liquidity. Whereas in the current crypto environment, you have this concept of fast exit liquidity. So founders mm. and VCs can create this project, hype it up, do, you know, they used to do a domestic uh, ICO. Now that's that, you know, that they go after that pretty aggressively. So then they do like a foreign ICO and then, you know, retail investors can buy these, these assets. And then that can all, you know, that project can fail. Um, but those founders and VCs already sold large amounts of the basically what is the token equity mm -hmm. involved. And so they've, they've removed that disconnect between the fundamentals of the project and the success of the token itself. And to some extent, the SEC is trying to reduce that type of scam. Um, and I, but I think it's also just a matter of, you know, as new markets form, it, t it takes time for consumers to understand those, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, like it, it basically, say a younger generation is less likely to be a uh, target of a phishing scam than an older generation because scams are just more intuitively obvious if you're more internet native or more experienced with it. Mm. Whereas if you're less experienced with it, phishing is more likely to be successful on you. And I think the same thing's generally going to happen with say peer-to-peer -peer securities that in, in some ways I think the you know the gatekeepers kind of permanently down. These things are always going to be possible. And it's going to be more up to the consumer to kind of, you know, try to try to as much as they can to avoid scams. And the SEC still has a lot of cover because they can point to this whole industry and say it's it's almost all scams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's I mean they've they've buried themselves in in all of that and that's I mean it, you kind of said that's the downside to the system we have and I think there are more upsides to it. Um it's almost like a centralized where this is a free market playing out in a lot of ways and just figuring out that type of industry. Um another thing I wanted to be sure to bring up with you because it unfortunately seems very partisan that I wanted to address was CBDCs. Um in terms of actual politicians signing on or supportive, the only politicians, to my knowledge, that have been really outwardly focused, there might be a couple of Democrats here and there, um, on, okay, wanting to ban CBDCs, obviously just went through the House Financial Committee in terms of a recommendation um, to not approve any CBDCs or creation of CBDCs by the, um, by the Fed, have, have been all Republican, right? So when those actions happen, and what I try to say, because some Bitcoiners and I have gone back and forth on this, it's not because I think there are inherent properties of why something is progressive or, you know, left or, or right. Same with Bitcoin, the same thing that Jason would talk about in his book and, and other things. But these politicians signing on send signals. So when someone doesn't know anything about Bitcoin, like I have a, a friend of mine, a progressive, they see Ted Cruz is really praising Bitcoin. I have to talk to them and say, it doesn't mean it's like a Republican thing. Like that, that's fine. That's great. That, that's okay. That's going to appeal to more people on the right if they trust Ted Cruz or, or whatever, or have voted for him, things like that. So CBDC being such a partisan issue, first of all, I think there's such a generational thing as well. I believe it was Maxine Waters saying, okay, well, we need to stay ahead of China. It's actually a new technology that's really cool. 
but then they'll completely dismiss Bitcoin, which is, I think, the hysterical irony to me is they're saying CBDCs are the, the wave of the future and we have to stay ahead of China. They're constantly, a certain group of Democrats are constantly thinking about global position and competition with China rather than our own citizens and saying that it's a technological innovation. Um, so obviously I, I can assume, and you've spoken about your thoughts on CBDCs, um, but in terms of this partisan politics, um, is that something that makes sense to you? Is that, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on, on that with this recent news? So I think it's something that, you know, if, if people get educated on, um, it doesn't have to be that partisan. I, I think it, it, it fits a little bit better in the current structures in the sense that generally when you look at, say, conservatives, they'll generally be more open to centralization of like social values and decentralization of fiscal situations. Whereas when you look more on the left, you'll generally see they are they want less centralization of social issues. They want that to be more decentralized or open, and they're generally more conducive to centralized fiscal. Um, mm. That doesn't apply to all types of people on the left, but that's that's I think if you were to do kind of polling or analysis of their positions, that's that's a trend we we see in kind of the modern right left divide, where yeah. the left is is more conducive to having large centralized financial structures. And so um, I would like to see, um, especially like non-establishment, um, you know, progressive left. I think that mm -hmm. they that the anti-CBDC stance would would fit in their camp pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we haven't really seen that yet. But I think that's the that's the that's a fine ideological mix. Um, I, I'm not surprised that the establishment left um, it doesn't really have a problem with CBDCs. Um, I, I think an intellectual exercise to go through is to realize how centralizing and semi-authoritarian CBDCs can be, and then imagine them in the hands of your political adversary, right? So imagine mm -hmm. people, imagine if you're a progressive, imagine conservatives having the power over a CBDC, having the power of being able to program your money, being able to easily surveil your money, um, things like that. Like, you know, would, would CBDCs be useful in Saudi Arabia? And if you were a gay person there, what would you think of the existence of that, right? If mm -hmm. you, if, you know, so basically put yourselves, if you were to kind of roll the dice and you, you appear somewhere in the world, would you want CBDCs to exist there? Especially would you want them to be the only type of money there, right? Um, and so I think that's one way to look at it is, is to kind of realize that you're not always going to be the one controlling the CBDC, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if people imagine their own party controlling the CBDC, they're like, well, what's the harm? It's, it's you know, they say, look, we can make money more accessible to people. Um, we can, you know, we can have various tools. We can, we can track down on uh, illicit activity more. You, basically, you can always kind of just list a couple of the positives, but then you just have to imagine that no longer being in your control and all of those things can be turned against you. Um, and that's why I think that it, it, it should be more appreciated by parts of the left than it is. Mm. Um, that's also why I appreciate the work of the Human Rights Foundation um, yeah. you know, they're, they're pro-democracy around the world. Um, and they, you know, they use Bitcoin as a tool for financial freedom, because I think one thing you see is that not a lot of kind of human rights groups realize the importance of financial freedom mm -hmm. and the vector that, um, authoritarian regimes can use to control their people by controlling their finances, surveilling their finances. And that's one of the things that the Human Rights Foundation, I think, um, you know, thanks to Alex Gladstein, figured out earlier than others. And mm -hmm. they've been kind of, you know, taking a more pro-Bitcoin 
uh, pro stablecoin in some cases, um, and and cautious of things like central bank digital currencies. And I would like to see more of those those education points or those talking points spread to parts of the left. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest selling point on the left. I think the environmental aspect of Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining has gotten drastically better over the last year with so many faces, you know, Troy, Margo, Daniel Batten, so many people putting out really good research and practical things um, that suggest to the left, okay, the, the ship is sailing a bit on some of those solutions we have to practical things like methane emissions um, and flaring and things like that. But I was talking to a friend the other day about Bitcoin because they knew I was doing the podcast and things. And they're like, tell me more about your crypto podcast was one thing they said. And I was like, well, let me, okay, let's back up. Let me, okay, it's, it's Bitcoin, not crypto, made, made a joke. But uh, episode I did with Farida um, on Togo and human rights activity, that was their like light bulb moment as a, as a progressive. They were like, that was, they literally were like, that was the missing piece for me. They were like, I didn't know what the use case was. And for me, I was like, okay, got to keep hitting home on human rights. And that's one point that comes up almost every episode I do, no matter who the guest is, no matter what political persuasion or focus point is, okay, imagine if your enemy or not your team was in control of a CBDC. I say the same thing about Bitcoin. Imagine if, you know, someone who was very anti-gay rights in the US, like, okay, they can shut down an abortion clinic in, in Texas that you wanted to advocate for, the banking uh, system there, like all of these different scenarios, um, some of those, those connections. But human rights is one that I think a lot of us in the Bitcoin bubble know a lot about at this point, regardless of political persuasion. I think a lot of Bitcoiners agree on the human rights stuff, regardless if someone is as left as me or as right as anyone else. We agree a lot on the human rights stuff. But in the general population, that is not, that's not trickling down uh, enough into mainstream articles. It's starting to. So that's my optimistic take is that once the left hears more and more about those human rights angle, that'll be the use case for them. Because there's a lot of things that the left cares about that isn't applying to maybe most Americans, right? But it might be uh, applying to folks in developed nations. So that's one of the hopeful takes for me is that the human rights angle really takes off. Yeah, there is a reason that I, I you know, part six of my book focused on human rights. And mm. Alex Gladstein is one of the most cited people in my book. Uh, yeah. Because I do think that that is a educational vector that still has a lot of low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. to to you know be successful um, as you point out the Bitcoin energy perceptions changing rapidly thanks to so much education and research on that subject and I, I think the next I think of the next wave to really go after is this human rights angle um, and so the fact that the Human Rights Foundation keeps finding use cases and, and case studies um, is, is useful and I think that that's like an initial seed and you know, I was there. There was a, a really big person who I think is generally considered on the left. I won't say who it is, but basically, they explained that you know, my bringing up um, the fact that Bitcoin was used by Afghani women in like mm-hmm. 2013, um, and that you know it allowed women to like have a financial system that empowers themselves, uh, even allowed some of them to you know, as they left the country, be able to leave with their capital. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of was like a light bulb moment for them. And so they, they, that, that kind of gave them a foothold. So when they hear like a lot of negative stuff elsewhere, like, oh, it promotes money laundering or it's bad for the environment or something like that. They're like, well, but wait a minute. Right. And so I think that that mm-hmm. is a, another, it's just a key thing that I, I try to emphasize as much as I can in my work. Um, I try to recommend the works of Alex Gladstein, 
uh, and anyone else who's willing to kind of um, go down that view. And I think, um, you know, unfortunately right now, because of the limited scale of Bitcoin and, you know, kind of the, the volatility of Bitcoin, it's still hard to find like super useful use cases of that. But I think that, that you know, there are a lot of us that are, say, putting capital into to places that are trying to make Bitcoin more private, trying to make um, wallets and things like that that can help support activists, mm-hmm. um, you know, human rights activists and trying to make these tools more, more available. Um, but I, 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 you know, com- Bitcoin and stable coins combined, especially when you say, okay, how does an Argentinian protect themselves from 100% inflation? Yep. And the answer is, well, they, they go into stable coins, they go into Bitcoin, they go into, you know, whatever other finite asset they can get their hands on. Um, and I think that this is just, it's super important to keep bringing up examples of this um, and to keep kind of, because um, that's, that's something that I think the left should easily appreciate if they hear it enough times and say, wait a second. So if I was in this type of jurisdiction, I would very much want something like Bitcoin or some type of either more private money, more censorship resistant money, money that I can hold um, and things like that, that, that some central authority might not be able to fully track or easily steal from me, at least without putting considerable resources into doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lynn, thank you for, for this conversation. Um, there's so many other questions that, that we didn't get to that maybe I'll have to have to shoot you or we can, um, do another episode another time. But, um, when, when you look out, so you're, you're, you're back from vacation, you're, you're plugging back in, obviously you're going to be talking about the book a lot more. Um, you know, what, what's up ahead for you in the next six months to a year. So I'd love to hear what's up ahead for you. And then also um, what are, what are you making right now of, um, you know, our global financial system? There's obviously that's a loaded question, but we're in quite a bit of a crab market, a lot of recession talk. What are some of the things you're looking out for in the next, um, six months to a year? So for my own, my own approach, um, I'm going to try to consolidate a little bit. I've stretched myself pretty thin lately. Uh, and so I'm really kind of focus on, on quality over quantity, really try to, you know, have that work-life balance, stay refreshed. Um, I do have a second book idea. Um, it's not my highest priority, but it's kind of, um, it's, it's there. Uh, but the, the thing near term I'm probably going to emphasize more is that I well, do. Hold on, hold on. Are you, are you able to, what the second book idea? What are, yes. what are some of your thoughts there already? You just put out this one and you just had some quotes in there from 2023, which I was very impressed with. I was like, that was a quick turnaround. You were representing, referencing some data that was not soon before I got a copy. So I was like, this was up to the wire. So yeah, what are some of your other thoughts for the second book? I would like to do a book more geared specifically towards inflation and some of the causes oh, cool. and consequences of inflation. It'd be a shorter, more concise book, mm. uh, and it would have naturally some overlaps with this book. But I think that um, that's a topic that um, deserves kind of more dedicated treatment. Uh, yeah. Like I said, it's not my priority, but it's an idea that I have. Um, the more kind of near-term thing I'm going to be focusing more on is um, I, I do some work with Ego Death Capital. It's a mm-hmm. Bitcoin venture firm, and we invest in like seed stage companies. Um, so that's something I'm getting a little bit more uh, involved with over time um, because you know it kind of goes back to that prior point of technological determinism. If if you don't like how the current system is, one of the options is to try to change it politically, which I think is important for people to do. But that's like a, a temporary local thing. And mm-hmm. you, whenever you make a victory, you always have to like hold that victory. It can usually just get pushed back against yeah. you. Whereas technological changes are more permanent. Like if you invent refrigeration, if you invent electricity, if you invent uh, you know X Y Z that's something that's out of the box now. It's like permanently 
mm-hmm. able to improve someone's quality of life. And so if you think that people should have more access to privacy or more access to good money or more access to whatever you think they should have access to, you know, in addition to politically arguing for that, if you can find ways or fund people who have ideas of how to make those things easier, more accessible, more robust, more successful, um, that's that's something that you can do. So I'm, I'm focusing a little bit more on that venture side. Um, uh, and when I think about the broad macro picture, um, I generally think that something that's going to be a big topic in the years ahead, I think the two things that I think are going to be reoccurring macro topics, one would be the potential for energy scarcity. This is another mm-hmm. topic that can be very politicized between the right and the left. Um, mm-hmm. And But I think that that's, I think probably in the years ahead, that's going to be a recurring theme, unfortunately. And number two would be um, that when you have very high public debt levels as a percentage of GDP, um, it can be hard to use interest rates as a tool for tamping down inflation because when you have low public debt levels and you raise interest rates, it puts downward pressure on private sector bank lending, which is disinflationary. And it doesn't put too much pressure on public finances because debt's low to begin with. So the mm-hmm. interest expense is not a big deal. But if you have very high public debt levels and you try to use interest rates as a tool, although it is putting down pressure on the private sector, it's also blowing out the public interest expense and, mm-hmm. and public deficit, which uh, in, in, at a certain magnitude can ironically be inflationary or stimulatory. Yeah, um, the and debt spiral, it's got to be. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe not to the groups you want. It goes, to, it's, it's like proof of stake. Mm-hmm. It goes to those who have capital, right? right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's a situation that I think is, again, going to be reoccurring. It's not going to be like the big deal every month. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that's along with the energy angle, because that's one of the inflationary components we could run into, that tools to bring down inflation, if they're interest rate focused, might not be as effective as, as they used to be. Um, mm-hmm. So those are kind of the two big macro themes I'm kind of focused on. And, you know, I think that that's, again, going that long-term picture of what can change the current system. I think the ever-growing public debt and the ability to kind of keep interest expense low on that debt is one of the things that can eventually, not not say next month, um, but eventually over time, increasingly destabilize this, you know, kind of developed world financial system in a similar way that emerging markets get destabilized on a regular basis. Yeah. And didn't you hear that the Fed has uh, penciled in a recession for 2027? I thought that was absolutely hysterical. Yeah. Um, that, that quote that came out. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, anyway, thank you so much, Lynn. Uh, where can where can people find you? I know you have a newsletter. I know you're on, on Twitter, on, on Noster, where I try to spend more time as well. But uh, where, where can folks find you? And I'll add it to the show notes as well. Yeah, so they can find me at lynnalden.com. That's my main hub. Uh, I'm on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Uh, they can look me up on Noster. Um, or they can check out Broken Money on Amazon. Nice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. This is such a pleasure. Appreciate you taking time. Um, hopefully you're not too jet lagged too. That was another thing I was, I was thinking. Um, and good luck with everything and we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.